Hey gang, it's Harold. In 2019, I sat down with Jeremy White to discuss his game designs. Jeremy's quick become the master of the solo air game. He started with Schwarm with Mark Osted in 2011 and then moved on to the enemy coast ahead, both the Dam Busters in 14 and the Doolittle Raid in 17. In 2018, along with Mark Osted, he published Skies Above the Reich, a solo game depicting the Luftwaffe squadrons of BF-109 struggling to deter and destroy relentless daylight raids over Germany during World War II. I hope you enjoyed the interview, and I look forward to your feedback. First of all, you're listed as Jeremy on everything I see. Yeah, I'm trying to confuse people, you know, the complexity of the rules, as well as even my name. It starts <laughs> right there with my name. Yeah, sorry about that. I, we can blame my parents. It's safe to blame my parents on, on, on that confusion. But, but I don't believe your parents are telling GMT what to label the design. That, okay, good point. So you you got me there. Yeah, I can see I'm not going to be able to slip things past you. Yeah. <laughs> well, my birth certificate says Jeremy. Okay. But my parents raised me in such a bizarre manner that uh, I just assumed that everyone understood that Jerry and Jeremy mean the same thing and it's interchangeable as it was at home. Right. Um, and somehow I just sailed into adulthood managing. It, it kind of depends. If I meet somebody professionally, then it's going to be Jeremy. Let's say at the bank or at a job or whatever. So, so uh, it's really important it's Jeremy. Uh, well... <sighs> You know, it's either I go, either, I don't even think, I, sometimes I even switch in the same conversation with people. Sometimes I don't even notice, right. but I have noticed that I've made some very awkward situations where people have no idea what to call me. And they're just like, cause if I get, if I meet somebody who knows me as Jerry and then I meet somebody else who knows me as Jeremy and the three of us get together, right. there's inevitably a very awkward moment in which awkward. I have to go through this ex explanation, right. apologizing to people for being so confusing and obtuse over such a simple thing. You and Mark worked on a game together. Yes, Guys of the Reich. But there was an earlier game. There was a game before the GMT games. Ah, yes, you did your homework, uh, Schwarm. Schwarm. That, that's, you know, everybody, I don't, I don't know how Mark feels about this, but I kind of, Skies was the, let me put it this way, Schwarm, we were happy with Schwarm, sort of, but we kind of weren't, which is why we did Skies. So we kind of like, in some ways, to have Schwarm go away. Because Schwarm grew in disguise. Sky, skies is Schwarm done right. Well, let's talk about Schwarm. So Schwarm was in... ATO Magazine. Yeah. The, actually, that, um, that began actually with Mark. That was Mark's idea, really. Uh, Mark was an avid player of Queen of the Skies, Avalon Hills. What is it called? B-17 Queen in the Skies, which is a game I never played until Mark sat me down, literally. I came over to his place once, and he, he had it set up. He said, you're going to play this. And I was going, okay, fine. So I, that's my one time I played it. Um, and I didn't crash. I don't know. I think I uh, – anyway. Um, so Mark had been playing this, and if you don't know B-17 Queen in the Skies, it's a solitaire game that was done in the early 1980s, a very nifty design, actually. It's very nice, and it's created a genre. So it's a very, in our little, you know, niche, it's a very important game that way, historically. Um, so basically you are uh, in charge of a B-17, a B-17 and its crew. So you start with takeoff, you do your mission, you encounter flak, you encounter 
uh, Fock Wolf 190s or whatever, and then you try to, you know, deliver the goods and then get the heck back and land. And the whole thing is propelled with dice and charts. So it's really, there's no, there's not many decisions to make, I think, but it tells a nice narrative. It's very immersive. It's very evocative. And there are huge fans of this. I mean, that have played it over and over. Have you played B-17 Queen? Absolutely. Love okay. It. All righty. Yes. Okay. Played it, played it before I stopped gaming in college, and then I played it five years ago when I restarted. So. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Did, have you played the revived version of Target for Today by Legion? No, they did a I'm nice not, job I'm not it. willing to, to look at a revised copy. Okay. All right. That's how I feel oh, about it. Oh, a purist. It. Yeah. Okay. Got to like that. Yeah. <laughs> Take us from there to Schwarm. Okay. So... Um, boy, this was like 2010, I think. I was sitting over at Mark's place, and um, Mark has a, a bagillion, gazillion game ideas. I mean, he's got these prototypes in various stages and everything. Um, so we were looking at a couple of his prototypes. You know, it's all looking really cool. And he had this one, and um, I hope it's okay if I reveal. Okay. Um, uh, he had this one where you are in command of, it was inspired by B-17, but you're in command not of one B-17, but several groups. Basically, you're the 8th Air Force, and you are organizing your groups. You know, you're trying to do rotations and so on, select targets, um, you know, and it was a very, it's a very cool design. And, and I don't remember all the details of it, but basically, at some point, we were talking about the tactical aspect where how much detail you're actually going to give when you know during the missions because you're dealing with every unit is a bomb group and so on and then he was uh relating all of this to b-17 queen in the skies where it came from and at that point i had to admit rather guiltily that i'd never played it i'd heard of it but i never played the game so i don't know what the heck you're talking about so he's describing me the game and as he's describing me the game i came up with two ideas First one was that this sounds like the dullest game I've ever heard um, because why would I want to be the bomber? That's the boring part. What are you going to do? You're not doing anything. I want to be the fighter. That was the second idea. I just thought B-17 would be a marvelous game if you just turned it around. Instead of you know, sitting there getting attacked, you want to... Flying in a straight line. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I just thought, bingo. Um, just turn it around. And uh, I had been thinking at that point, because um, I was pub- I had just published a game, or I was in the process of publishing a game with ATO Magazine, Against the Odds, which is a great magazine. Um, and they, at the time, and I think they still do it, they do these little postcard games. But they didn't have many of them back then. Now I think they have a billion of them. But I used to, they, I guess they teamed up with some other game companies. So I would get their magazine and it would come with a postcard game. And then I'd buy a game from somebody, some other company, and I'd get one of their postcard games. But inevitably, I would pile up two or three of the same postcard games. So the first one is kind of cool. You know, it's kind of neat, you know, whether you play it or not. It's still kind of you know, interesting topic and so on. But after getting two or three of the same one, you're going to... So I thought, you know, these guys, what if they could come up with a postcard game where if you got a copy, a duplicate, instead of going, meh, you know, who am I going to pawn this off on? What if you went, yes? So the two came together. So I thought, okay, this would be great. You just will put the B-17 on the postcard. Then you have the little, you know, 
pieces, your counters, which will be the 109s or the 190s. And then if you got a duplicate, now you have two B-17s. And you get a third, now you have a V. And then you and your buddy has three or six. And after a while, you can have a whole combat box. And then you could, so you got a formation. And then if you're successful and you bust one of these B-17s out, you know, isolate it, now it's like a mosaic thing. You just take the mosaic tile out. So I thought this was a great idea. So, you know, Mark and I whipped up a little postcard game and we sent it off to ATO. And because uh, we thought it was really a nifty idea. And we were, you know, very, um, I guess we were very happy to find that they also liked it. So that's how that was born. The only problem was they liked it a little too much because instead of keeping it as a postcard game, they said, why don't we make it bigger? Uh, I think they had just, um, Steve Rawlings had just sprung for a one-inch die cutter, so he wanted to do big counters. So he said, we're going to do really big counters, the one-inchers, and we're going to do 8.5 by 14 map. And we were flattered. So, and I, I, looking back on it, I think we should have, because this is one thing I've learned, is that the designer has to defend the design because there were some I mean I have to say um, they did a good job with it you know I think the art of it is is nice and I'm and we were flattered that they wanted to grow it a little bit bigger and make it more substantial um, but I think we should have defended the basic idea of the mosaic and the postcard more been more strenuous because I think that would have been better interesting um, so that's why we were dissatisfied with it. So after it got published, you know, well, you know how it is when you get a game published, it's kind of, you're happy. There's a bit of contentment there, but there's also kind of relief because it's a lot of work and you finally got it out and you're also moving on to the next thing. You're kind of tired of it by the right. time it's right. out there. But I think we had this lingering feeling of dissatisfaction from it that we wanted to do it better. So so we wanted to take that little mini game of Schwarm and we said, you know, it's the formation of the bomber that was crucial. That was the tough part. As good a machine and deadly a machine as the B-17 was to the Luftwaffe, it was 20 B-17s in this three-dimensional pattern called the combat box that was absolutely deadly. So you can't really simulate that or present that to the player as a tough nut to crack unless you have a whole map. So we talked to the folks at ATO and said, you know, we'd like to expand this to a full map and do it as a, you know, a full magazine game. And they gave us the green light for that, said, yeah, this sounds great. And then what we could do is we'd have Schwarm, you know, so if you knocked one of the bombers out that would be printed on the map, then you could have this, you know, mini game if you had Schwarm where you go after the isolated bomber. So it seemed like it was all set. So we worked on it for like two or three years and we got it to a point where it was, I think it was publishable, publishable. I think it was ready to go. Um, Cause I, I distinctly remember Mark coming over my place and I had the map all ready for him and, you know, and we were just going to run through a mission and everything. And, you know, we did it and I remember looking at each other going, yeah, it works, you know, and which is a great feeling. You probably know that when you get a game working, you're going, yes. But it wasn't a great feeling because we, you know, we're looking at each other. Yeah, it works, but it's not very good. It's not that. And he had issues with it because it wasn't quite tr true enough, I think, to the events. 
you know, it wasn't a good enough simulation in some ways. I thought it was a little bit tedious and was taking too long and wasn't just that good of a game. And I kind of felt like if we had sent this off, some, and they published it, they would have done some nice art. Some people would have liked it. would have been okay. But, you know, after going through Swarm and not being fully satisfied, I th from that I think we learned that, you know, it's, we have to be jazzed about it for it to go out, for us to be, you know, to really put ourselves behind it. So instead of sending it out, we just put it on the shelf for like two or three years. And I think we, I, I think I was probably the one who probably picked at it again. And at that point we said, and this was tough, because we really felt indebted to ATL for giving us a chance to begin with. And we like ATL, you know, we like those guys. But we kind of said, what if it wasn't a magazine game? Because one of the things we were bumping up against was the B-17 and the 109 both changed throughout the air war. You know, the machines from the E to the F to the G you know, and then they, they got uh, more and more, you know, armament and different types of armament. So one map felt kind of constraining. And also the tactics, how do you put the, com how they put the combat box together also changed. And then the German, t that led to different German tactics. So we kind of felt we needed more than one map to be able to show the progression through 40, late 42 into 45. And we needed more pieces and parts. And, you know, the constraint of the magazine game was really telling on our process. So we, at that point, I was uh, fortunate enough to be publishing a game with uh, GMT games. And because, you know, as you, as you know, once you get the attention of Gene Billingsley and those guys at GMT, then, you know, you kind of have it easier for the next game. You know, they're willing to give you a look. You kind of get that automatic look. So we thought, you know, what if we just said to ourselves, this is going to be a GMT game. So then all of a sudden you have a box and they can, GMT can put a lot of stuff into a box. And at that time they were doing coin where they were experimenting with other, you know, bits and pieces. So we still saw this as a kind of hex encounter game, although there aren't hexes, but basically it was counters and so on. And that was liberating. We started experimenting with cards, and it was getting out of hand. I mean, we had seven card decks at, you know, the peak of our absolute delusion. So it just grew multiple maps and counter sheets and all, you know. And after a while, we had to, this was great. I mean, now the model was starting to work really well, and it was fun, but it was too much, even for GMT. So we had to contract it. Um, but that's how it went from Schwarm to Skies of Other Reich. Got it. So the name Schwarm, where does the name Schwarm come from? Uh, the name Schwarm. Um, well, Mark would be able to answer this better than I would, but um, it's basically, it ref it's a formation. Uh, it's basically four fighters. Um, it's, um, it's a German formation of four fighters that was developed during the Spanish Civil War. Um, the Germans were very innovative in terms of tactics and also in terms of machinery, but it was really, they were ahead of everybody else all their competitors in the early part of the war, World War II, you know, they adopted the, um, the one-two, you know, you've got your leader and wingman, and you put two of those together, and then you get the swarm. 
uh, it was really intended as a tactical formation that was very flexible. It could pack a lot of wallop against other fighters, but it could also split up. So it was very, you know, um, it was very malleable. Uh, when they started encountering the heavy bombers of the American formations, they didn't need that flexibility because the heavy bombers were just so static. But instead what they found was that um, the swarm allowed them, it gave them basically a wall of fire. Because when they went in as four abreast, uh, head on usually, but sometimes they do it from the tail, but it's mostly head on, that even as the bomber would swerve, or if it was two bombers or three bombers, they would inevitably swerve if they could keep their formation, that is the fighters could keep their formation, they would swerve into a, away from one tracer and into another. So it was kind of, you know, and they experimented with that a bit. So it just, it, it also phonetically in English, it's just the idea of swarming a bomber with fighters. So it had that combination. Right, right. So a German word. Yeah, yeah. The American something. equivalent was finger four because the British adopted it um, and then later the Americans adopted it. So it became the standard fighter formation in a lot of ways. Interesting. So before, before Skies... Your first game with GMT was Doolittle Raid, right? Uh, no, no, oh, okay. it wasn't. It was the so Dambusters. Dambusters, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So where did that come from? Uh, Mark Osted, of course. Of course. Uh, the dude comes up with all sorts of ideas. Yeah. Um, I was literally walking my dog, um, Harry, as it happens. He was an American Foxhound. He's not with us anymore, but a lovely dog. Um, walking the dog and um, texting back and forth. We, uh, not texting, but emailing back and forth. Because Mark and I, we live in the same town. So we game together and so on. And we design together. And um, we periodically email each other. And um, we go through these periods where Mark usually is emailing me. You know, he'll say, I have this idea for a game. It's like every week. I have this idea. And they're always brilliant ideas, you know. Um, so he's going, how come nobody's ever done a game on the Dambuster Raid? That was a really interesting, you know, event. And it just was like, it hit me like, it, it was like a train hitting me. It was like, that is brilliant, staggeringly brilliant idea to do that. It's one of the coolest things that, from an yes, engineering it, perspective, went exactly, on during the war, right? Exactly, exactly. It's such an interesting episode of World War II. So, um, so we, you know texted back and forth and before I was done with that walk I had a I, I had uh, the notes function in my phone and I actually still had the same phone um, kind of a luddite that way um, <laughs> and it's not a flip phone so. <laughs> no almost but it's an <laughs> iPhone 4 that my wife keeps saying actually her my wife's sister says what you need to do is just lose the phone <laughs> that's how you get them to get a new one um so I still have, it's just a list of, you know, it's basically like a player aid of a sequence of play and how this would work. Um, and then we started uh, just reading up on it, of course, and we were doing it together for a while. And then, but we had incompatible ideas. He wanted to do this card kind of game. And he had come up with these cards, which was a very cool game. Um, but one thing led to another. But anyway, I just had this other idea. I'm, I like more spatial, although I like cards, but... I envisioned the map and, uh, and I was more into recon and planning and that sort of thing. And it just fell together. 
Yeah, quite rapidly, actually. Um, it only took like, I think about two years before I was maybe three before I got brave enough to go to GMT for it. And did you know anybody there? Did you? Well, I'd, um, yeah, yeah, I didn't know. I mean, I, I had been there several times because of Mark and this friend of ours, Martin Scott, who used to live in our town. And actually, I started going to GMT. I'd never been to a game con, but GMT for a few years ago, actually quite a few years ago, used to have their con at our town in Goleta. And Martin Scott uh, used to organize it or help organize it. He and I think Roger McGowan were organizing it. And um, so I always said that GMT came to me with their con. That's how, you know. And then I moved back to Hanford, but that's how I met Martin. And then actually Mark and I ironically met at Hanford. So, um, yeah, so I'd been going there and I knew a lot of people there, but I didn't know the GMT people, you know, the people who are, make the decisions about. So, but I'd had, I took it there a couple times in various states and... Um, did a little play testing, got some feedback and so on until I got brave enough to take it to say, Gene, how about, you know, and it's always tough going to Gene because the guy is so busy there. Right. Because he's got all these designers and wannabe designers, you know, pitching stuff at him that he's got no time. Right. You know, so I, I distinctly remember he was walking from one part of the warehouse to another. And I just kind of, I literally was like a Fock Wolf 190 intercepting him halfway through and I said Gene if you have like a couple minutes like to show you a game you know and he barely looked at me he just kind of nodded and you know and he made he's a good guy he made some time for me you know and uh, I distinctly remember that when I was sweating and because you know that warehouse you've been there that warehouse can you can be sweat warm. in there <laughs> yeah, depending yeah, on the weather yeah, yes. yeah. and I remember running just doing this monologue and it must have been for like 15 minutes and he was totally silent the whole time and I was starting to, you know, get dry mouth because I was just, you know, and I was showing him this, showing him that, you know, kind of nervous. And uh, I remember when I finally ran out of steam and there was a pause and he yawned and I thought, oh, that's a good sign. <laughs> and then he looked and I said, is it ready? And I said, um, no, no, I need a little bit more play testing. We said, okay, I think we can publish this. Just let me know when it's ready. Wow. And I was like, seriously? <laughs> so it was like, so well, we're cool. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Well, people ask all the time. I'm sure you get these questions too about what you need to do to get a game published. Yeah, yeah. And, and to me, it's about proximity, right? You have to work your way into the system. Yes, you do. It really it makes a huge difference. And yeah, I think on the East Coast, it's probably Andy Lewis. That you gotta, you know, right. knock on his door, and, and he's a—I met him too. I, he's a real friendly guy. He's a very smart guy. Right. I think he's a mechanical engineer. I remember pitching him a game. Right. Um, and that was a great experience. It's, you also learn when you do it, and and Gene is a very good um, designer, publisher, teacher, and you probably noticed this that when you talk to him about a game, he will wear various hats. You can talk to him as a as a designer but he will eventually put on the marketing hat. Right. And then you get a different conversation that way, yes. which is pretty cool. Yes. Yeah, that, that, that working your way in is the critical aspect, right? I think that, that it happens a lot of different ways. One way is to play test, 
right? Mm -hmm. So to help them and, and the other is to attend these events yeah, and yeah. spend time around them. Right? Absolutely. And, yeah. And, and, and I think, and Gene really, he, he said it so many times, but I've also seen it in action. He really responds well to developing a relationship because that's what right. I think he wants with you. He right. wants to know something about you. He wants to know about, you know, he wants to get to know you uh, to a certain extent and make sure that you are, you know, uh, that he's, that you are somebody GMT can work with. Right. Agreed. Agreed. And I think the other assessment that he told me he tries to make while he's watching you while you present, right, which he did to me as well, uh, and is the assessment of, of can you finish it? Yeah. Because as you said, when you're done with the game, you're burnt out. Yeah. And frankly, you're burnt out before you're done. Right. <laughs> yeah. So and, and at that point, everybody else stops working on it. Right. right? All the play testers are gone. Right. Right. Your developers sick of it. Right. right. You're sick of it, frankly. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, you have to finish it. So. So he just, he wants to know that you're the type of person that can finish. Because yeah. I think there are a million game ideas in the world. Indeed. But there are very few people that have their name on a box, right? Right, right. And, and that's because that last, yeah. that last 20%, 10%, whatever yeah. it is. And I've heard that from Mark and I've heard, or, uh, I've heard that from, from uh, Gene, but I've also heard that from Mark Semenich. Yeah. Who's told me the exact same thing. It's all about just that last yeah. 5%. Yeah, and it's, and it... And then, then there's another 5% after that because it never ends. Because even it, there is, because right. even after it's out there, right. then you have to be online yes. because nobody can, there's some questions that only the designer can answer. Yes. You know, no matter how sincere other people involved in the design have been, you're the one ultimately, you know, especially if there's a problem. Right. You know, and really this is where I think the designer on the one hand needs to defend the design, but they also need to stand behind it. Right. You know, this is this was your baby. This was your idea. You saw it through. And if something isn't quite working right, you know, it doesn't matter where the mistake was. Right. You are also quality control and you have to do the vast majority of customer support when it comes to the design itself and the yeah, play absolutely. of the game. And it's a big it's a big responsibility for the designer. But it's also it's a really good opportunity. Think about 40 years ago. We would have. We would have had to send the designer a note <laughs> with a self-addressed yeah. stamped envelope. Did you ever do that? I think I did it once. Did and you I don't, get I don't think I ever back? got a response. Oh, okay. and, and Mark Herman tells great stories about that was his first job at SPI. Was, was, he was <laughs> an assistant and going through and answering all that stuff. <laughs> they, had, they had this monster file cabinet full of these things that people had sent. But, but all you can really do, and, and I have, having never received a response, I don't know this from experience, but I hear that people get a one-word answer, yes or no. Yeah, right? yeah. So, so it's nice that we have the forum to be able yeah. to see the feedback, to weigh it, oh, yeah, to make it's a call where it's necessary. As a designer, it's priceless, yeah. you know, to see how people are seeing, you know, you get to see a glimpse through somebody else's eye, this product, this, you know, thing you've been slaving over for so long. Right. It is very difficult to, you know, get outside of yourself, but it's very enlightening. You know, it really, you can really see the improvement. At least I feel I can see the improvement on the next project. Right. So, so Schwarm, I see, is one or two players, having, having never played it. I, yeah. So, so it's actually, yeah, it's supposed to be solitaire, but you could do it cooperatively and semi-competitively where you're on the same side, but you're sort of competing for kills and so on. For most. Yeah. So Dam Buster's... Single player. Purely, yeah, purely solitaire, although we, I did put in um, where you could have, you could do it um, as a group, 
cooperatively. And I know a lot of folks who like doing it that way because you get to right. talk about various decisions and stuff. Um, in uh, the Dam Busters, there are some mini scenarios where you can do it competitively, but it was never really designed to be competitive um, in that regard. It was really right. just a solitary experience simply because that was such an asymmetrical situation. I mean, I considered it early on doing making it a two-player, but there's just nothing for the German player to do well, except the roll dice. Would, second player would be the dam. Yeah, yeah, right. right. And the dam and the dam would have to pretend that they don't know they're about to be attacked. <laughs> to be surprised. Yeah. Wait, what? Yeah, because that that is what really attracted me about the project was that um, solitaire games, which I'm not really crazy about playing solitaire games, those that are designed for solitaire, but it's an opportunity. It's a design opportunity because most solitaire games, the reason why I don't like them is because I really feel as though the designer has taken a two-player, what really is a two-player game, and they've just made a robot, as it were, you know, the AI, which doesn't interest me that much. But with, you know, the Dam Buster Raid, it was all about surprise and secrecy. Um, if you do too much recon, if you start sending planes over the dam, the Germans are going to catch on. So the British actually didn't. They got, they did a very circuitous route for the recon. Um, so that was really fascinating, and I think you can't simulate that. You can't represent that in a two-player game, right? but you can in a solitaire game. So I like marrying the right form to the whatever it is historically you're trying to represent. Right. And I love it when, those, when that is done very well, and, and as a design process, and I can't claim to do it that well, but it is very satisfying to try to solve that problem. I played I played Dam Busters once, and I played it with two other guys. Okay, there you go. Right, yeah. so that so that's and it wasn't you know there was no cooperation. It was all yeah. about let's yeah. just work through this problem together. Yeah, which I was surprised by that because I've seen you know and I've uh, people have told me that that they, they often like doing that. I've seen that at you know Hanford, for instance, which is kind of cool watching right. people play your own game. But, sure. Uh, but yeah, I, I totally get that. Yeah, right. yeah, that's yeah, fun. That's kind of interesting. Well, so you've kind of answered the, the next question I have, uh, which is great. You're kind of interviewing yourself, <laughs> which is nice. But but the next question was, was that I was going to ask was was this was the solo w design then driven by the idea or a preference that you have that drove you to solo? It's definitely it was definitely the situation. Right. Yeah, because if I. Like I say, I, I really don't play solitaire games. That I mean, I play solitaire a lot, right. but I prefer two-player, um, a more complex war game or a very large one that takes a long time. I prefer to play that by myself right. rather than against somebody else because I lose patience um, over time. Um, but yeah, um, and what's ironic is that what I really like about games, especially Euro games and so on, is the social interaction. Right. That's what's so wonderful about face-to-face -face play, right. which is why I'm not really driven to buying. I'm not one of those solo gamers that is really looking for a good solo system. Right. Although they are getting so much better. They're so much more interesting than they used to be, I think. Agreed. Agreed. And, and more usable. Well, what about you? What kind of, I mean, I, I have two questions for you, if you don't mind. I'm curious. I, I, how I'm going to delete them instantly. But, <laughs> yes. okay. but feel free to ask anything. Hey, boy, you, for a minute there, I thought I was talking to my wife. <laughs> I can say that because I'm confident she won't be listening to this. <laughs> Let's hope. <laughs> um, how did you? 
how did you pitch the game to GMT? Did you go through Volco? Because, you know, you did the Liberty game, which is a coin game. Right. So, so, so Liberty or Death started out as, um, I, you know, I just reentered the hobby after taking 30 years off to do stuff, to do work and family. It couldn't have been 30 and years. It was, 30, it was, it was pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty close. So it was between, it was between college and five years ago. So wow. I don't really want to do the math. So let's just say, boy, okay. But but when you jumped in, you really jumped in. Well, I jumped in at a great time. Right. And, and, uh, at the same time, I, you know, was, was kind of, re- it was getting close to retirement. So, but what happened, uh, for me was I played Andy and Abyss and just found it fascinating, right? Imagine jumping into a time machine during the Avalon Hill SPI days and then shooting forward and playing Andy and Abyss. It's like, what in the world is this? This is extraordinary. <laughs> I can imagine, right? yeah. The, the asymmetry, the setting, the concepts, the different, the asymmetry and the uh, goals the, the, or the uh, victory conditions for people sitting around the table. Sometimes you cooperate with the good guys. Sometimes you cooperate with the bad mm-hmm. guys. You know, just, just a crazy mix. Right. It was just lovely. I loved that game. Uh, I find it to be fantastic and that whole series. So as we're, as we're playing this, I'm, I'm looking at it saying, well, this is the American Revolution, right? I mean, there was the government, which was the British, and then there was the Patriots, who was the rebellion, and then there are tons of other people sitting at the table. When I was in graduate school, I studied game theory. And one of the things that you talk about in game theory when you're, when you're solving these types of either diplomatic or business negotiating problems is how many people are at the table. And in war games, historically, we've only had two people at the table, and Germans and the Americans, or whatever, right? the Allies and the Axis. But, but frankly, it's never like that. It's never two people. It's always thousands of people, hundreds of, mm-hmm. at very least, two, three, four, five, six, eight factions sitting around the table. So mixing that cool Andy and Abyss model with my view of the American Revolution, mm-hmm. which has always been a hobby for me, with who was really sitting around the table, I added the French and the Indians. Now, I could have added a ton of the, 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 the Tories, the Spanish. Mm-hmm. There were all sorts of different. I was curious when I saw why the Tories weren't in there. But I'm not questioning right. the design. But right. I could, have you thought of doing like a fifth player Tory person? Well, there? you know, I would add the Tories. Um, there were different factions. There was a peace faction. There was a pacifist faction. Uh, as well. Now, the the Tories are integrated at the time, uh, I, my view, and still is, that the Tories and the British needs are so tightly mm-hmm. integrated sure. that uh, I just put in a different functioning unit, which are the green blocks. Right. They give you different capabilities and do different things and have certain limitations. Mm-hmm. And if you don't protect them, they die. And if you protect them, they can thrive and help you. Um, so that that's that's what I did there. And, and, and I get the question a lot of times, well, Tory should have been one of the factions, and, and it, you could have worked that way. Well, I'm not saying it should have. No, I, I'm with you, and there are plenty of people that say it should have, and, and in, my, in my mind, this is my model of my four factions. Now, if, if somebody else wanted to create a model that excluded the French or excluded the native faction and the Tories were a part, that's cool, right? I mean, that's a game, too, and I'm sure it would have worked mm-hmm. just fine. It was just, just my perspective was I wanted to bring out the frontier war, Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to bring out the fact that the most, the first and the second most powerful nation in the world were fighting here, mm-hmm. right? And I wanted to bring that out, and that brings the French in with the British, right? Right. So, uh, so anyway, I, I I thought that was cool, and so I just put together a prototype, and my friends and I played it for six months. Oh wow! And and I I had no designs on designing. I had no idea that I was ever going to design anything. 
and we had a blast and I kept refining it and uh, the map was horrific, right? Brian Train said it was the ugliest map he's ever seen. Wow. And Brian's the nicest guy in the world, so, so <laughs> was, that's telling you something. Um, but now, I, now I'm really curious. I want to see it. Yeah, well, there are pictures out there. I'll send you a picture. It's, it's, it's terrible. It looks like a flow chart. I did it in PowerPoint, and it's literally a bunch of rectangles that are the colonies. Well, it sounds like you and Ananda Gupta have a lot in common. Have you seen his playtest map? I'll, I'll take Ananda Gupta. As okay, a, as yeah. A, Boy, know, you two are two peas in, in a pod when it comes to map making. Yeah, That's great. That's awesome. <laughs> so the uh, so at some point I said, uh, I'm going to send this to Volko just to, sh- just to tell him it's really cool what your original idea created as, a, as an idea for me. And, um, and so we started a, a little, a light email exchange and, and he's, he's wonderful. And, and so he, uh, I said, are you going to be at Consem world? I'm going for the second time in my life, uh, since I've started back. And he said he wasn't, but he said, these guys are going to be here and let me set you up with them. So he set me up with Mike Berticelli. He set me up mm-hmm. with Gene, uh, Jordan Kerr, some other, John Leggett was there. And, uh, and so I just took it and laid it out. And, um, with once again, not really thinking that we're going to be designing this. And, and so Gene asked me a few really tough questions about events and about factions. And, and he told me that, uh, he told me we had taken this idea to Volko and Mark Herman. And they said that it didn't fit the coin system. (laughs) So, but, but then right after that, Gene says, but I'd like you to to do it. Uh, (laughs) So, So how you know better how in, than uh, Mark yeah. Herman? That's pretty good. Mark and, Herman and, and Volko, yes. Wow. Yeah, clearly I. Yeah. Wow. That's that's that the worst. That could be your hashtag. <laughs> that's the death knell. Right? I was <laughs> I was terrified when he said that. But you know, I had I had an idea, and we worked through it, and and uh, Jordan and Mike were phenomenal in helping develop the the ideas, and so yeah, that's that's great. how it came yeah, apart. Yeah, those but, two are wonderful. But it was it was just uh, you know it was just sitting down with those guys and showing them and and. Uh, you know, happened through Volko. I, one of the things that I've noticed about Volko uh, is that he uh, he gets tons and tons of, hey, I've got an idea for a coin game, and what he'll say to you is, okay, do it, make a prototype and we'll look at it. Uh, yeah. Right. And that and that really is once again, you know, we talk about finalizing being the limiting factor. That last five percent, getting to a working prototype <laughs> is very rare. Right? Yeah. Plenty of ideas. Yeah. But getting to that working prototype, so I think that was a big step and and. Uh, um, so that's, that's how I got started. Yeah. So now that you're back, uh, do you do solo gaming? I do a little bit. Okay. I did a ton in the Avalon Hill SPI days, you know, it's, hence the B-17 many... queen of the sky. Yes. But I used yeah. to, I used to solo everything else, right? From so it must have been ambush. Stalingrad. Or... Well, you know, I would solo every, solo everything that was two player. Okay. Oh yeah. Um, okay. That's what I, and did, I had yeah. a good friend, uh, that, uh, that I played with at the time and, um, we would two player stuff, but I just love to read rules and push pieces around. Okay. So I, I, I can, I'm with you except for the reading the rules. I, yeah. I had a hard time doing that. And sometimes yeah. I just sort of like third Reich was my favorite game as a kid. Yes. Um, or at least a teenager. And, um, boy, I could hardly make heads or tail of that. Um, but I just sort of, I did a lot of solitaring of that game. Right. And then in college, I had a friend group, and I remember realizing that this, at least this friend group, played that game. They actually knew how to play it. And it was like, okay, I guess I got a few things wrong. Right. That's great. <laughs> That's great. So for finish with interviewing me, I'm going to turn okay. the interview back on you. All right. I don't know. You're and sounding we- pretty interesting. <laughs> oh, I'm extremely interesting. <laughs> so... Um, 
so the so the next uh so we're talking about dam busters then we move on to the doolittle raid yeah the doolittle the doolittle raid just was um i guess to my surprise that there was you know like i don't know three people actually liked the dam buster raid so they're in three well you know what it's like you get you do something and people get excited about it. Sure. And which is sir, like and a lot shocking, more than three surprising. People got, yeah, oh, thank yeah. you. That's, that's kind of you. So I, you know, even before it was published, uh, the Dan Buster Raid, I started thinking, you know, I put so much work into trying to create this approach to doing a game. Um, and I'm still surprised that people, you know, tolerate Enemy Coast Ahead. Because I thought as I was designing this, you know, why would any, it's a little bit tedious, you know, it's kind of complex and tedious. Um, I enjoyed designing it, don't get me wrong. Um, but I think kind of like you when I was designing it, although I was sort of thinking about GMT actually from the very start, but I was thinking, you know, it's not going to be the end of the world if they say no, I'm, you know, I'm still enjoying it. It's sort of like playing playing a game and the, uh, designing a game is just an extension of the hobby really you know because I don't know anybody who really does it thinking that this is going to be a second career or something like that right um, so you've got to really enjoy it which is one of the nice things about it that you know that every product coming out pretty much by who, whomever it is you know that they really that it is a labor of love and there's something nice about that so I just thought okay I've, I've got this structure for a game um, and it lends itself to very asymmetrical situations where recon and inf information is integral to the gameplay. That is, you know, the, the player is not, um, you know, they're, they're not, they don't know everything. Uh, and there's a risk to knowing because that's what I really enjoy about, what, what I find fascinating about Enemy Coast Ahead. And that's why I try to find situations where you can do this mission better if you had more information, but to get that information could put the mission in jeopardy. So it's that kind of dilemma, which you can't do with two players. Right. You know, because nobody can pretend to know that this raid isn't about <laughs> to happen. Um, so I was fishing around for other things that might, other situations in World War II that I knew about, or did, actually, quite frankly, that I didn't know so much about because... That's another reason why I like designing because I get to learn a lot about stuff. You know, it really takes, as you know, it really takes your knowledge to another level when you have to design the mechanisms of the game that are going to be true, true representations, or at least as true as you can make them. Right. So you really got to know your stuff. So I thought the Doolittle Raid, and I was also looking for episodes that have not been done. Um, you know, so I didn't want to do Battle of the Bulge or any, or any of the big things um, that have been done to death. Um, but done well. I mean, there's a lot of good games on Battle of the Bulge, including solitaire games. Um, but Doolittle Raid, I didn't know if any, I, I was not aware of any game on the Doolittle Raid. And I thought it was the a kind of raid that gets a bad rap. You know, people will, a lot of folks just assume it was just a PR stunt. And it was a lot more than that. And it was also very risky. Um, it's hard because it wasn't a perfect mission. That's another thing I'm looking for in Enemy Coast Ahead, that it was the historical event. The outcome was kind of middle of the road. So in the Doolittle Raid, um, they lost all of their aircraft. Uh, so that's, not, that's a fail. <laughs> when you Because uh, one of the points of the mission was that they were delivering 
a squadron of medium bombers to China as the nucleus of the 10th Air Force. So they failed in that mission, that transport mission. And on the way, they were going to deliver some ordnance to Tokyo to strike back for um, Pearl Harbor. But in order to do that, uh, they had to get uh, the squadron of bombers close enough so that they could actually reach, ultimately, China. So to do that, they had to put them on an aircraft carrier. And they were not designed to fly off an aircraft carrier. So specialty training, right? Um, but they had to put the aircraft carrier into jeopardy. It had to get into, um, it had to get into uh, the um, uh, sea and airspace of Japan, of Japan's home islands, which was an incredible risk at a time when the U.S. Navy was in bad shape. They just lost all their battleships. And the one thing that they had, one asset that was precious, were their tankers and their aircraft carriers, which they didn't have many of. Um, and the tankers were just as precious. And to do this, they were also had to risk a tanker because it was such a long voyage, they couldn't do it without bringing a tanker along. So that was just very interesting right away because now with the planning, you know, you got to get the Navy's buy-in. They have to plan this too, but you can't give them too much information too early. Otherwise, too many people are going to learn about it. And, do, and uh, Doolittle had said that while they were planning it, about five people total knew about the mission. And he said, I didn't write anything down because I didn't want anything to be in a waste paper basket or whatever. Uh, and he was really quite nervous about um, secrecy and so much so that they had given him, because of his command, they'd given him a B-25. So that was kind of his company car. So instead of getting on the phone whenever he had to talk uh, to his boss, Hap Arnold, or anybody else in Washington, um, while the squadron was training in Florida, instead of getting on the phone, he actually hopped in his um, airplane and flew it to Washington because he didn't want to get on the phone because he knew that you're going to get connected by an operator. They may continue to listen a little bit, especially if they hear they know it's Doolittle because he was a famous guy. So that's the level of secrecy, you know. Right. Um, so it, it's, it was a... Um, I thought a very fascinating topic that a lot of folks don't know that much about. Um, it could have been a lot worse than it was, and it could have been a lot better, too. So it was kind of perfect in that regard. Right. So if you apply what actually happened to your victory conditions, you said the loss of all aircraft is a failure. I've seen that in the rules. Yeah. <clears throat> but what about... Um, is there any other measure that delivery? Yeah, yeah. Delivery if you lose an aircraft carrier, that's even worse. That would be bad. That yes. would be very bad. Yeah, because right. uh, that could mean that you know Coral Sea is not going to happen. Right. Because Nimitz isn't going to risk it anymore. It means that the line of communication to the South Pacific and Australia is now, if the Japanese decide to go there, they're not going to get contested. At least not in '42 until they get more assets. Right. I mean, I think the outcome of the Pacific War. Uh, was probably, you know, already set in place as soon as Pearl Harbor happened because the United States, the might of the industrial complex was such that Japan just could not compete with that. Right. The only, the only caveat, though, is if there was a loss of will. And it's hard to speculate what it would have taken for the United States with FDR and so on 
to ha and his constituency to have in Congress to have that loss of will. It doesn't seem likely. Right. Yeah, agreed. So what, um, so, so we go from there to Skies Above the Reich is your next? Uh, well, Skies Above the Reich came, uh, was kind of parallel with Doolittle. We were working on that just as um, the Dam Buster Raid, Enemy Coast Ahead, the Dam Buster Raid was coming out. Um, and then, so, yeah, so we were doing that. But, you know, Mark and I were doing that one together. And when you work with a partner, it's a little bit slower. I think it's better, but it's slower. Because you got to get both people on board with everything, and you can really square. It's like a marriage. And I swear there, was, there were moments when I was going to give Mark Ostead a divorce. That was it. I was saying, okay, you don't like this? Then you come up with a better idea for this little mechanism, because this works. But anyway, you have to keep your own ego in check, which is sometimes hard. Right. But the collaboration is fantastic. Well, he is very patient. Right. So, you know, and he's, you know, and I have to understand, I have to remind myself that he's more knowledgeable about the historical subject. So I got to listen. You got, and I'm not always a good listener, as my wife will remind me. Because um, as you can tell, when you start rolling, talking about stuff, you know, um, and... Uh, it's one of the nice things about designing on your own. You get to be the boss. <laughs> you got to do everything, but you got to right. be the boss. Right. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, like, I like the solo stuff. The collaboration is what really feeds me. So I have to have play testers. I yeah. have, you know, the developer, I want the developer to really be engaged. Yeah. yeah. And I struggle, I struggle with that because different people have different yeah. styles and, of course, different day jobs. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I'm not crazy. I know a lot of people swear by developers. I, you know, I, I haven't really used one. Right. Um, and when Mark and I were doing Skies Above the Reich and now we're doing Storm Above the Reich, um, I don't feel that we need one because we have to constantly persuade each other of something. Right. Which is great because you really have to, you know, I, I think that's what a, a good developer, I can imagine if I had, if I did work with a developer, I would hope that they would challenge me about my decisions right? so that I would have to convince them. Um, but, you know, I, I do graphics on my own. Um, and GMT, I guess they're passable because GMT allows me to do that. Uh, Mark Simonich is great to work with in that regard. I always, when the project is done, I send all the files to him. He will make a couple suggestions and do some tweaks, but otherwise it goes through which is very flattering because he's a great guy and he's very talented. Yes. But because you do your own graphics, it is a very complete process because, you know, when I look at um, some of the, you know, you were just mentioning, you know, you using PowerPoint, you say, to do your <laughs> map. That's interesting. Um, graphic design is part of game design. It right. is really because when you are moving the pieces and making decisions and just the way you think about the decisions that is being influenced by what you're seeing. Um, I mean, for instance, with skies above the Reich, um, I had an epiphany halfway through that process and it was a complete accident. We had always thought of counters that your planes are going to be counters, big counters. We're going to do one inch counters, you know, really nice with good graphics and everything. And I remember I was, working with it and uh, I had to replace a counter so I printed it out and that's the nice thing about doing your own graphics is that you can you know you're in total control so 
you know, so I printed it out and now I have to put it, I have to glue it on the museum board and I have to cut it and wait for the glue to dry, you know, and I just, I was in a hurry and there was this block sitting there from some other game. And I just said, I'll put it on the block that, you know, and I won't even have to wait for the glue to dry and everything. And, and I just did that. And it was like, holy crow, this is amazing. It's so easy to pick up and it stands out. The visual graphic hierarchy of having the blocks on the board that was just wonderful. That's great. You know, and I never would have encountered, come across that if we weren't doing our own graphics. So I, and there are some, uh, and I, I've noticed that a lot of the designs that I, designers that I admire um, are also doing their own graphics, like Mark Simonich, you know. Um, in fact, the way he's told me that the way he works is that he'll do the map, at a, he'll figure out the scale, do the map, do the pieces. He hasn't done any rules yet. He now he's done his order of battle. He's got his counter sheets and he's cut them and and he starts, you know, I guess they call it storyboarding or whatever. But he says so on October first, nineteen forty-two. This was where everything was, and then he starts looking at that and he develops. He starts developing rules. It's such a great way to go about designing. Right. You know, so the graphics, the pieces are right there at the start, not something you have to hand over to a graphic artist. Now, right. on the other hand, what you miss, though, is the collaboration. Right. Because I imagine, and we did, because I didn't do the graphics for ATO. They have their own guy who's very good. Um, and I did a magazine game for them with uh, Mark Mahaffey. And he wanted to experiment with some of the counters and stuff. And that was great. You know, that was a graphic designer who was really on board with the project. And, you know, I thought, oh, this is a very talented guy. I'm going to try to learn as much as I can from him. You know, so you get that when you collaborate. Right. But you also lose a little bit of control. Yes. So it's kind of a plus and minus thing. And there's something very satisfying about having control. And also, if you have full control, it makes things faster. When we were at Consum World Expo, you told a terrific story about a project, potential project that's coming up that someone else initiated for you and you said that it couldn't be done. Yes. <laughs> so would you mind telling that story again? Uh, sure, sure. Um, this, uh, it has to do with Skies Above the Reich. So Skies Above the Reich got published and even before it was published, actually Gene Billingsley himself asked, I mean, it's the same question over and over again, just like with you, you and the question about the Tories. Which, by the way, I think having, um, you know, the First Nations as a faction was a very smart idea in that, in that game. So I know some people really question, but I think that really puts an excellent spin, an appropriate spin on the game. Because, as you say, it brings out the frontier. The frontier war was critical. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You could also have, if you're going to do an expansion, other um, um, uh, First Nation um, factions because yes. they did not always agree. Um, but anyway, so we, we were doing Skies Above the Reich and um, actually there's, there's I can, let me slip in one story about that which is about Gene Billingsley which I found, he is he sometimes surprises me. So there's this other game which I haven't brought to GMT officially yet but probably will sometime next year. It's on um, raids against Ploisti in Romania the, the oil fields so it's a different system and so on. So, you know, I had brought that there and I'd also brought, Mark and I had also brought Skies. But Skies wasn't quite ready. I wasn't, we weren't sure we were gonna actually show it to Gene yet. So I had two tables in the warehouse at GMT weekend. 
And one of them is one of those occasions where Gene's very busy. So I intercepted him again. But this time I had, you know, published games. So he, you know, he will give me the time of day, you know. <laughs> so there I am standing uh, um, and I'm explaining to him about this game and so on. He's nodding. I'm going for about five minutes and um, he says, okay, all right. I'm talking about the uh, Ploisty game. And then after I finish, he says, okay, when, it's, when you're ready to show me, you know, I'd be very interested in seeing that. And then he finishes by looking down at the table, and we were standing next to Skies Above the Reich, which I hadn't mentioned at all. And he says, that's the game I want to publish. He hadn't even seen it. He hadn't sat down with it. It was like... <laughs> but anyway, after we did take that to him officially, you know, one of the first things he said was, can you do this for Battle of Britain? And it was like, everybody's asking, you know, even while it was in development, oh, this would be great for Battle of Britain. And Mark and I are going, no, it wouldn't. You don't understand the fundamental behind Skies Above the Reich, which is terrain. The idea that the heavy bombers are in a formation, uh, it's a, they're creating a three-dimensional field of fire. They are static because they're holding together for dear life, you know, because they are creating that field of fire, right? So if you substitute that for, say, I don't know, uh, you know, a DO-17 or even a JU-88, which was a large plane, but it's still a medium plane, or even an HE-111, which was a very large plane, but not the size of the, of the B-17 and didn't have the armament all around like the B-17 did, it's not going to work. And those, you know, we were thinking the, the, all the German bomber pilots were excellent. They were very disciplined. But it's not the same thing when, you know... Um, and also the hurricane pilots and the Spitfire pilots, you know, they would, and the uh, Messerschmitt pilots, the escort, they would dive into the formations, whereas against the American heavy bombers, that was a very different situation. The P-51 Mustangs would not necessarily remain on the tail of a 109 as it was on the tail inside the bomber formation because it's just too darn dangerous. Those 50 calibers, you know, going off. So we thought the whole premise of the game was the static quality of the bomber formation, which is why you can literally print the bombers onto the board. But how do you get away with them in the Battle of Britain, which is far more dynamic? You know, so we towed the line and said, no, Can't no, we're not gonna do it. Because it's not that it's not an interesting subject. There, there are already good games on the Battle of Britain also, you know, and we kind of like the idea of designing games on topics that haven't been done, that haven't had enough love, as it were. But there was one person on BGG who kept saying, no, of course you could do this. And, you know, and I tried to explain, you know, why can't I laid all these things out? And, you know, there was silence. Um, and then I think a few weeks later, this person says, oh, I did a module on Vassal for a Battle of Britain variant. <laughs> we're going, what the heck? And um, we're looking at it and we're going, this is actually pretty good. <laughs> uh, and uh, the, the person's name is Gina Willis, uh, who is also um, designing a game, I think it's called A Glorious Chance for Legion. Um, you know, I've never met her face to face, but, you know, and she 
was in contact with GMT and saying, I think this would be, you know, a good, you know, variant and so on. And we were talking. And so after a while, I thought, okay, this deserves a real good look. And she then put together an amazing prototype, you know, a, uh, you know, a paper and board prototype. And she took it to GMT West. Um, and then she sent it to me because I wasn't able to go. I still haven't met her. But after that, I said, okay, I think we're going to have to do a lot of tweaking to the system to make this work. Because what I really admired about this is that she was trying to stay true to the system of Skies Above the Reich. She didn't want to, you know, change the system itself. Um, so now we are co-designers and we're going to do Skies Above Britain. So we're going to probably sometime next year take it to GMT, hopefully, touch wood. So... That's a great story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But she was very persistent, polite persistence, and very right. smart. So. Right. And you were a very close mind. Yes, I was. I have to admit, I was like, no, this can't work. Which is interesting. You know, Volko tells the story of, of doing, doing Andy and Abyss, and then people coming to him and saying, we'd like to see a two-player coin game. And he said, early on, if you had told me that, that we could do this as a two-player game, I would tell you, you don't get it. <laughs> exactly. right? you, don't, you don't understand. Yeah, yeah. Right. And he said, now I've been proven wrong. Yeah. But, but, yeah. It, but it's funny. That it's yeah. the tunnel vision that we get, right? Yeah, because, I, I don't know, being a little bit too close to the system, I, you know, I still stand behind the, the idea that uh, it won't, Battle Britain won't, is not well suited to the system that Mark and I created for Skies Above the Reich. However, um, there are some things that will work well if we're willing to change the system just enough to shift complexity off of the interaction between fighter and bomber and slide it onto the interaction between fighter and escort. So if you do that, you're going to get a different game and you're going to get a different game system. Right. But hopefully it'll be a really fun game system. Yes. And That's I guess I'm up for the challenge now where I wasn't before. I don't know. You know, things change. Well, I would go back to that's the power of the collaboration. You're right. It is. Right? Yeah. It's yeah. different, new and different ideas yeah, that, that exactly. the other can't see. So uh, we had talked a little bit about a top five list. Uh, or, or now, now, now <laughs> we, can, we, can, we can contextualize this however you'd like. Five games that were most influential. What, what, do, you, what do you think? Maybe, because Mark and I on the way up here, we're talking about this and I was telling him like, what the heck am I going to, what mm. am I going to say here? Because cause the problem is, yeah, I mean, I like games and I'm thinking about games all the time, but I don't right. play that many games because, you know, I'm not retired um, and I'm designing games, right? you know, and right now I'm designing two games that I'm trying to get out the door, you know, so, um, and working with different sets of play testers and so on. Cause I, too stupid to actually work with a developer, so I got to do all that myself. Right. Um, so I haven't been playing that many games. For instance, I think the last, like, well, that isn't true. I have played a couple of word games with my wife and some friends at home. But that's pretty, including this guy, right. um, which is far and few between, though, since concept. Because right. when I was in Phoenix over the summer, played a lot of games, but actually a lot of the games I played were my own. Because that's the problem when you're a designer now. I realize it's one of the Achilles heels. I guess it is the Achilles heel of being a designer is you get stuck playing your own game over right. and over again, even though you, I love going to GMT West, for instance, and playing a bunch of different games. But unfortunately, that is an opportunity to play test and so on. But if I had to say, 
I, it's kind of a mix, though. The influential is also favorite. But, I, you know, I, I'm a sucker for new games. I love being introduced to a new game because you can always learn, especially as a designer. You know, I'm always looking for new systems and a new way to do something. Um, but my first war game was Victory in the Pacific, and that was just earth-shattering. And then um, it was Civil War games and then um, um, Third Reich which I absolutely adored. I mean, I did, you know, War of the World version on my own. I did Cold War version on my own. You know, all, and, you know, I'm, I know a lot of people, have, you know, that's what we did back then. Right. Um, but, boy. Um, no, that's, that's good. It's, it's good, to hear, good to hear that list. Uh, is it Third Reich is one that I, that I purchased on the secondary market when I started back with the intention of playing it because I have the same romantic memories of when I was young. Yeah. When I was young, we would play, I would play it. I would read those rules and I would be as confounded as you were. <laughs> yeah. And I know that I played it wrong, but I would play it nonetheless. I was much more forgiving early yeah. on making mistakes. Uh, I, yeah. And I still am yeah. actually, cause I will take games you know, sometimes very complex games, and I'll just start doing my own rules. Right. Partly because I'll forget, and I have a choice. You know how it is. There you are. Do I look, plunge into that rule book? Right. Or can I just sort of make it up? Right. And, you know, nobody, if, that's the great thing about solitaire. You don't have to negotiate with that other player right. or other players. Right. Let's just do it this way. Yeah. And you don't have to tell anybody that exactly. you can have made something yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how we're all different in that regard. I, I'm that way now as well. But, but, you know, when we're playing competitively in my group, if there's a rule, it has yeah. to be looked up. Do you have result. a competitive group? I, we play. There are a ton of people that we play with in San Diego that are. Okay. Yeah. So. Oh, you're very lucky. Well, I, we've worked really hard to cultivate it. Yeah, that's what you have Part to do. Part of it's the convention. Yeah. But you have to cultivate it, right? I mean, you have to be the change that you want, right? It's, so true. it's true. If you want a group to play with, you just have to, that's you right. have to manhandle yeah. it and make it happen. Right, right. Did your wife play? Is she a gamer? She, she's not a gamer. She is my wife. She'll play backgammon or we'll, you know, we'll okay. play some card games that are okay. soft. My wife loves word games. So, and there's an old, and it's one of my favorite games. Actually, I have to admit it. And good thing my wife's not going to hear this because I hate to have to admit it to her because I always moan and groan whenever she says, <laughs> okay, I'll play Probe. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with Probe, no, but it's um, this old, it's from the 60s. Um, it's a fun word game because there's no downtime. You're always thinking. Because right. the one thing about a lot of card games or, uh, sorry, word games is that... Um, there's always that downtime where you're waiting for somebody to come up with a word, like Scrabble, for instance. Right. You know, you're waiting five, ten minutes, and what do they come up with? The word pig. You're going, you took that long, and that's all we have is pig? <laughs> so I'm not the a probe. Fan. Probe is great. Yeah, it's, uh, you, you come up with a word, and you got some blanks, and everything is hidden. And then you guess letters, and you can interrupt each other. So you're trying to come hide your own word but guess everybody else's so even after you're out you're not really out so right. it's a brilliant game actually that's good that's good well that's a good place to to stop so i appreciate you taking the time and and frankly driving to meet me here in pasadena at well I, you know it's uh i'm very flattered that you would because uh, considering all the people that you have interviewed i'm i'm Wow, I'm very flattered. Well, people are very interested in hearing what you have to say. Well, thank you. So, and I'm not sure if they're interested more in what Jeremy has to say or Jerry, <laughs> but, but we'll see. So, so thanks for taking the time. You're welcome, and thank you.
tell you right away, that's too complex for me. So I'd it, never I, be able well, to do the I know, podcasting I know thing. much better. Your games are too complex for me. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> so uh, I, I know that that's not the case. I'm, I'm afraid uh, at some point I'm going to start. All right, guys, you ready to go? <clears throat> so, okay. So, so we can hear you through the mics. So, so if you'd whisper, it would be okay. I, I mean, it, some noise is acceptable, right? Or any noise is acceptable. But if you, the, the more you whisper, the easier it is for everybody to hear the differential on our side. So there you go. We're talking to you, mister. That's right. I try to talk to the group, and then that way you don't have to single anybody <laughs> So uh, one of the things I did was I prepared a series of questions and I had your list of games uh, with me. And of course, I left all of that back at, um, at the car. So I'm hoping I didn't leave it outside the car. <laughs> I left it inside the car and I've asked my wife to check and I'm sure she's uh, very happy about having to do that. But um interesting. I would suggest it's not as embarrassing as today me introducing Mark to my wife as Andy. Oh, okay. Well, because that's, I mean, both have four letters. <laughs> right? It works. But I think he could work as a Andy. It would work either I way. I could see that. No, yeah. it was meant with the best of intentions. 